Welcome to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU addresses that highlight the university's institutional vision. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. John S. Tanner was academic vice president when he delivered this university conference address titled A House of Dreams on August 28, 2007. BYU is built of brick and mortar. It comprises libraries and laboratories, classrooms and cafeterias, well-groomed grounds, and cluttered faculty offices. It is built of impressive financial resources and of remarkable human capital. But above all, BYU is and ever has been built of dreams and ideals. Our house of learning is also a house of dreams. In the early days of Brigham Young Academy, the building that housed the school burnt to the ground. Many thought that the fire had signaled an end of the academy. Reed Smoot lamented to Carl G. Mazur that the school had been destroyed. But Brother Mazur knew better. He said, On Sunday, January 27, 1844, flames erupted from the second floor of the building. The cause of the fire was never determined, but it didn't matter. Provo had no fire department, and the academy had no insurance. Townspeople rushed to form a bucket brigade, but their efforts were futile. They removed what books and furniture they could. Then they just stood and watched the building burn. Reed Smoot, one of the school's first 29 students, was among them. He would later become a U.S. senator and an apostle of the Lord. He approached Carl Mazur, grief-stricken, that the academy had burned down. But Carl set his jaw. No, fire has destroyed the house, but the academy lives on. End of quote. Brother Mazur knew that BYU, like Zion, exists as an idea, an aspiration, and indeed a prophetic injunction to seek learning even by study and also by faith, and to not teach even the alphabet or multiplication tables without the Spirit of God. Such ideals are hardy. Fire cannot destroy them, for they reside not in buildings alone, but in the minds and hearts of the Latter-day Saints. Even so, it took a prophetic dream regarding BYU's future to persuade President Mazur to stay here during those difficult days and early years that followed the fire. Nevertheless, despite Carl's determination, the next eight years were dark indeed. I'm quoting from the history of the university here. The school occupied several temporary buildings, including the Smoot Drugstore, and finally settled into a warehouse leased from ZCMI. But facilities were makeshift and supplies depleted. Carl struggled to pay the rent. At first, faculty were fiercely loyal, but then their families began going hungry. There was talk of closing the school. Even Carl himself wrote of giving up the cause. He said, I am worn out and sick in spirit, and with all my love for this academy, I feel that I owe it to my very life, which is needlessly wearing itself out here in an apparently hopeless task, 
to accept any change that will promise me opportunities for permanent usefulness. With that, he told his wife and daughter that because there seemed to be no real support or future for a school here, he was going to accept a position at the University of Deseret where he could get a regular salary and at least adequately provide for his family. According to his wife and daughter, he got things packed and then they sat on their trunks for several days until his daughter finally mustered enough courage to ask her father when they were moving. His response was, quote, I have changed my mind. I have had a dream. I have seen Temple Hill filled with buildings, great temples of learning, and I have decided to remain and to do my part. That's the end of the quote. Such divinely sent dreams have punctuated our history, and the dream that BYU will become, in time, a great Latter-day Saint university, if it remains true to its mission, is woven throughout our institutional history. This dream preceded us. It overarches our current imperfect attempts to realize it, and it will outlast our brief contribution to it. Though all else change, this dream endures. As Carl G. Mazur observed near the end of his tenure here, quote, amid the ever-changing scenes of development which Brigham Young Academy has passed through, whether holding forth in one single room under makeshift arrangements or enjoying the benefits of more suitable facilities, whether in rented premises or in her own palatial habitation, there must go through it all one thing constant, the spirit of the latter-day work. As long as this principle shall be the mainspring of all her labors, whether in teaching the alphabet or multiplication tables or unfolding the advanced truths of science and art, the future of Brigham Young Academy will surpass in glory the fondest hopes of her most ardent admirers. So said Carl G. Mazur. BYU's history abounds in such seemingly hyperbolic visionary statements about its future. Such visionary hopes for BYU can seem daunting as well as exhilarating, especially when we're bogged down in mundane tasks of grading, resource allocation, assessment, rank advancement, and the like. Yet even amid the quotidian cares and controversies that beset us, the extraordinary truth persists that great expectations envelop this university. The halls here echo with prophetic utterances, such as John Taylor's prophecy, You will see the day that Zion will be as far ahead of the outside world in everything pertaining to learning of every kind as we are today in regard to religious matters, he said. You mark my words and write them down and see if they do not come to pass. Such statements are the stars that must guide the good ship BYU as it tacks across academic seas. President Kimball, quoting a man named Carl Schurz, said, Ideals are like stars. You will not succeed in touching them with your hands, but like the seafaring man on the desert of waters. You choose them as your guides, and following them, you will reach your destiny. Over the years, Thousands of individuals have contributed to the dream of BYU. 
Every year, new students and faculty add their particular hopes and dreams to our collective vision. This past year, many of you participated in the process of defining and refining the dream for your programs by developing expected learning outcomes. Some years ago, I was privileged to participate in a similar exercise when I was asked to draft the aims of a BYU education. As important as our contributions to the dream are, and they are important, it is prophets who have ever provided the fundamental vision that guides our course at BYU. Our theme this year comes from one such prophetic statement, a remarkable talk entitled Education for Eternity, given by then-Elder Spencer W. Kimball over 40 years ago at an annual faculty conference just like this. Subsequently, as president of the Church, President Kimball explicitly returned to and developed themes in education for eternity in the second century of Brigham Young University, delivered in 1975 for BYU's centennial, and then again in the charge given to President Holland upon his inauguration in 1980. Taken together, these three visionary discourses span three BYU administrations and 23 years. They constitute a major prophetic pronouncement upon the unfolding dream of BYU. So on this, the 40th anniversary of Education for Eternity, I want to consider our current accomplishments and challenges in light of President Kimball's talks, which articulate dreams that remain ours to fulfill. In doing so, I recognize, of course, that we take our direction now from our living prophet and our current board and from the president they have selected. President Kimball himself frequently reminded us of our duty to follow the directions and policies set uh, forth by the prophet and the board if BYU is to fulfill its mission. Nothing, I shall say, should be interpreted to diminish our duty to look to current prophets or their right to set the course for BYU. This said, I believe President Kimball's call to excellence is consistent with President Hinckley's challenge to be excellent and President Samuelson's exposition of our quest for excellence this morning. In addition, we can learn much by reflecting on the words of a former prophet who had so much to say about BYU's mission and destiny and whose teaching, coincidentally, are being studied in the Church this year. I've put President Kimball's talks on the Academic Vice President's webpage so that you can read them in their entirety. Today, I shall simply cherry-pick a few ideas for your consideration, which, for purposes of analysis, I've organized under three broad areas—students, programs, and faculty. So first, students. He said that BYU should be a refining host for brilliant stars. I was not here when Education for Eternity was given in 1967, but I have spoken with those who were. The effect was electric. It was as if President Kimball, then Elder Kimball, lifted the veil of a destiny few had dared to even dream when he launched into the second half of his talk with these words, quote, In our world, there have risen brilliant stars in drama, music, literature, sculpture, painting, science, and all the graces. For long years, I have had a vision of BYU 
greatly increasing its already strong position of excellence till the eyes of all the world will be upon us. End of quote. He then proceeded to enumerate at great length the names of notable men and women whom Latter-day Saints ought to emulate. Now, I use the word emulate here in its root meaning, to strive to equal or surpass. That's the literal meaning of emulate. President Kimball believed that Latter-day Saints, artists, scholars, statesmen, and scientists ought to outdo those who lack the grand doctrines of the Restoration and whose lives are sometimes unworthy of the companionship of the Holy Ghost. He said we should seek to emulate, among others, Wagner, Verdi, Bach, Handel, Paganini, and Liszt in music, Da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo, Rembrandt, and Torvaldsen in art, Goethe, Shakespeare, and Shaw in letters, Lincoln in statesmanship, Pasteur, Curie, and Einstein in science, and so forth. President Kimball's words were so audacious as to seem almost unbelievable. Yet he repeated this extravagant expectation as church president in his talk the second century of Brigham Young University. He expected brilliant stars to arise from BYU. This university can be the refining host for many such individuals who will touch men and women the world over long after they have left this campus. As I reread Education for Eternity and now the familiar charge to become a refining host for brilliant stars, it struck me that President Kimball was thinking primarily about the accomplishments of BYU students, not faculty. After all, it is our students whose achievements will bless the world long after they have left this campus. Likewise, it is our students who make up BYU's orchestras, orchestras that President Kimball predicts will one day rival in quality the Philadelphia Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic. This does not mean that President Kimball lacks high expectations for faculty scholarship and creative work, as we shall see. It does mean that he anticipated that BYU's greatest contributions will come through its students. This fact can serve as a salutary reminder for us about the fundamental purpose of scholarship at BYU. It is not, and must never be, to satisfy our own vainglory, nor to advance our own careers. Nor even is it solely to advance truth and knowledge, though this is a worthy purpose and one specifically endorsed by BYU's institutional objectives. The primary purpose for the Church's large investment in faculty scholarship and creative work at BYU is to enable us to be a refining host for our students— Hence, we must strive for excellence, as President Kimball says, quote, not in arrogance or pride, but in the spirit of service, unquote. So, how are we doing in realizing the dream of becoming a refining host for brilliant stars? I see exciting indicators that we are making progress up the slopes of the educational Everest which we are supposed to become. For example, BYU is ranked 10th nationally in terms of where new PhDs receive their undergraduate degrees. And some sub-disciplines 
are ranked in the top five as undergraduate incubators for new PhDs. Likewise, BYU is one of the top feeder schools for law, medicine, and dentistry. And in every case, our students have acceptance rates well above the national average. To be sure, BYU draws upon a very large undergraduate base, which affects these rankings. Still, the figures are impressive and certainly consistent with President Kimball's charge to become a refining host. Similarly, our students in the fine arts are finding great early success. Many of you have read that our animation students have won multiple student Emmys in the past four years running. In addition, students in illustration, music, theater, dance, and communications have been similarly recognized with prestigious national and international awards. The success of our young artists bodes well for these extravagant expectations President Kimball dared to dream 40 years ago. Maybe the dream is not so far-fetched after all. A senior faculty member in music, after listening to a performance by a student orchestra, recently told me he felt he was witnessing the fulfillment of President Kimball's dream that someday BYU student ensembles would rival in quality the great orchestras of the world. I thought that was extraordinary. And so it goes for student performance in many colleges across campus. I shall leave it to your deans to brag about the student accomplishments in your areas. It is heartening and humbling to receive reports of our students' achievements. The eyes of the world are indeed beginning to rest upon us through them, as President Samuelson discovered when accosted by the president of another university who incredulously asked him if it was true that one of our life science students had recently published in Nature, a, a premier journal, as you know. It was indeed true, said President Samuelson. Moreover, he told the dumbstruck fellow president that the student was an undergraduate. <laughs> but we can do better. In order to strengthen our efforts to become a refining host, the university has reorganized and reallocated the Pre-Professional Advisement Center, developed initiatives to help BYU students compete more successfully for major scholarships, and focused significant resources on mentored learning. The latter program has been remarkably effective in enhancing the quality of undergraduate education, and we intend to continue to fund and foster it. However, no amount of reorganization or resource allocation will ensure BYU's preeminence as a refining host without your commitment. This dream depends on the quality of your interactions with students. Above all, we need you to contribute to look for ways to help your students see their potential and stretch to achieve their lofty dreams. When I interviewed our Rhodes candidates this year, they all said that having a faculty member believe in them enough to encourage them to compete was the single most important factor in their competing. But they also said that had they been encouraged earlier, as were the successful candidates, they might have been more prepared to win. We can and should become even more effective refining hosts and mentors for our students. President Kimball 
felt that the true measure of an institution of learning is the impact it makes on the total lives of its students, and that BYU stood preeminent when measured with the true measuring rod of greatness. Note that even 40 years ago, President Kimball adduced student outcomes as the best measure of success at BYU. He also cautioned BYU to continue to foster quality teaching and learning. I love this quote. He said, While the discovery of new knowledge must increase, there must always be a heavy and primary emphasis on quality teaching at BYU. Quality teaching is a tradition never to be abandoned. It includes quality relationship between faculty and students. We must be certain that the lessons are not only taught, but are also absorbed and learned, he said. I think about this injunction often. I quoted it to Russ Osgothorpe when giving him his charge as the new director of the Center for Teaching and Learning. The Center is charged to work with faculty to support quality teaching and quality learning in the spirit of President Kimball's injunction. Our students deserve quality teaching in every class. I am personally troubled when evaluations are consistently low for a course or for a teacher for years and no remedial action is taken. We can do better. We must do better than this. In aggregate, it is difficult to know whether our students are being better taught or learning more now than they were 40 years ago. As Derek Bach, the president of Harvard, observed, no one knows whether we are educating students better now than we did in my generation, he said. Despite huge increases in funding for higher education, we simply don't know, we don't have the data to know, if college students are better educated. I am hopeful that our efforts to define, measure, and improve student learning outcomes will help us better understand how well our students are learning. More importantly, I hope that those efforts will help us actually get better. It is not enough merely to define objectives and collect data. We must close the assessment loop by making data-driven improvements. So let me again encourage you to seize the mandate from the Northwest Accreditation Association to make meaningful, cost-effective improvements. I'm convinced that significant improvements can result from rather simple, low-cost, low-tech strategies like giving frequent feedback. The Chronicle of Higher Education reported recently on a study by memory researchers that confirmed the not surprising findings first published in the late 1930s that frequent quizzing greatly encourages and it greatly increases rather long-term learning. What a surprise. Measuring what students know not only increases retention but changes what they know. I have found that the practice of asking students to write what I call captures during the first five minutes of class about the readings or the last five minutes of class about the lectures to be a simple but effective learning technique. It not only helps my students learn, it helps me learn what they're learning. I encourage you to do something similar this semester to improve teaching and learning in your classes. John Taylor's prophecy refers to the day when Zion will lead the world in everything pertaining to learning, he said. 
Calling attention to this phrase, learning, Russ Osgothorpe has suggested that there may be deeper meaning in this prophecy about BYU's destiny as a house of learning than we have heretofore considered. Now I want to talk about dividends through service and dedication. President Kimball was keenly aware that given the growth of the Church, quote, a smaller and smaller percentage of our Latter-day Saint students, college-age students, will attend BYU. More and more, it will be a privileged group who are able to come here. Those who are blessed to attend BYU have a great responsibility to make certain that the Church's investment in them provides dividends through service and dedication to others as they labor in the Church and in the world. Your challenge is to assure that this investment does bear fruit. That's end of quote from President Kimball. This continues to be a challenge, albeit one ameliorated for international students somewhat by the emergence of the uh, an inspired perpetual education fund program. We have a heavy responsibility to ensure that we are doing the best we can to admit students who will take advantage of the investment the Church is making in them, which I call a tithing scholarship. To this end, we have modified our admissions process to look more carefully at the personal characteristics of applicants in the hope of not passing over those who promise both to enrich our environment here and to yield the dividends President Kimball refers to after they graduate. Moreover, although the students we admit are indeed a privileged group, admission to BYU ought not to favor those from economically privileged backgrounds. Therefore, we are augmenting needs-based scholarships to help those most in need of help. The largest scholarship every student receives, however, remains a tithing scholarship. It is my hope that over time we will foster a spirit of giving back to BYU comparable to the ethic that prevails in the Perpetual Education Fund. Given the growth of BYU and the ever smaller percentage of youth who can attend BYU, we in the Central Administration feel a heavy responsibility to be judicious about any request for additional resources from the Church. We thus continue to look first internally to meet our needs and ask colleges and departments to do the same, recognizing that even without making requests for new funding, BYU receives generous guideline increases year in and year out, amounting to millions of dollars in new funds each year. Under President Samuelson's able and frugal leadership, I expect this pattern of internal reallocation to continue. Now, let me talk about programs with you. First, peaks and planks. President Kimball urged BYU to become an educational Everest. He felt that while BYU was a great university, a much greater one it can yet become. Such aspirations for BYU to get better coincide with President Hinckley's charge for BYU to be the best it can be. Yet neither then nor now should the need for BYU to grow in stature be confused with a mandate for BYU to grow in size. Even in 1967, 
there were enrollment caps. President Kimball predicted that these will actually help BYU channel, quote, energy formerly given to growth and expansion, unquote, into making our dreams come true. The same principle holds today. If BYU is to become an educational Everest, it will not be by getting bigger, but by getting better. We must do more by doing less. The metaphor President Kimball repeatedly used for the painful work of reallocation is that of a ship that must be kept seaworthy by taking out old planks. He said, The BYU must keep its vessel seaworthy. It must take out all the old planks as they decay and put in new and stronger timber in their place. It must sail on and on. Unquote. Now, I have used the metaphor of pruning instead of planks. Whether the metaphor is planks or pruning, BYU must engage in the discipline of ongoing reallocation of resources. These changes do not happen free of pain, challenge, and adjustment, President Kimball remarked, commending the university for its efforts to change the academic calendar, manage the curriculum, and realign departments and disciplines. I commend you, too, for your efforts to reallocate and focus. During this year and the next, the academic side of the House will have reallocated 30 FTEs and about $12 million. This represents very hard work. Thank you. Thank you. Our colleagues on the support side of the university are doing the same hard work. We are the beneficiaries of six new faculty FTEs that were made available through their belt tightening. They have done this out of a desire to enhance student learning and in the spirit of consecration. I am profoundly grateful for their sacrifice, as I know you are. President Kimball believed that there must be ongoing pruning for BYU to become more fruitful. We're trying to do this at the central level for the university-wide programs and institutes, but it is departments and colleges that can best ask and answer the questions about whether you have the right focus and the right number of programs. You know best if you are spread too thin or if a degree program is weak. I commend colleges and departments that are asking hard questions in order to get better, such as the College of Life Sciences, whose heroic restructuring the President praised this morning, sociology, which eliminated its Ph.D. to concentrate on undergraduate programs where BYU enjoys greater competitive advantages. Management, which is consolidating its centers and institutes to focus on serving students in a targeted way around core college goals. And engineering, which is focusing its work around five imperatives needed to offer world-class engineering programs in the 21st century, to cite only a few examples of many. Such work is not free of pain, but, wisely done, it can produce much good. Limits force us to think seriously about what we do best and where we must do it better. They force us to focus, which is the necessary prelude to developing 
what President Kimball calls peaks of educational excellence on our educational Everest. So I'm actually happy for limits. I think they're good for us. Now the next section, not an educational factory. President Kimball admonished, quote, we do not want BYU ever to become an educational factory, unquote. This is another phrase that frequently comes to my mind as I observe trends at BYU and in the academy generally. The warning seems ever more timely as higher education drifts toward consumerism and commodification. Education is no mere commodity, nor are students merely consumers. President Kimball quoted President McKay, who observed that, quote, a university is not a dictionary, a dispensary, nor is it a department store. It is an exercise in thinking, preparing, and living. So said President McKay, unquote. Isn't that wonderful? Similarly, President Kimball observed that BYU, quote, must concern itself not only with the dispensing of facts, but with the preparation of its students to take their place in society as thinking, thoughtful, and sensitive individuals, end of quote. Unless we approach the assessment movement wisely, seizing it to serve our mission and aims, we risk introducing a factory mentality into BYU. Let us keep these principles in mind as we assess our programs and teach our students. It is difficult to resist mass production mentality when we must teach so many students, but resist it we must. Elder Pallard forcefully admonished chairs and deans just yesterday to remember in all that we do the worth of the individual. I loved that. Each soul is precious. Somehow we must attend to the one while we also serve the many. As President Kimball said, quote, we can do much in excellence and at the same time emphasize the large-scale participation of our students, whether it be in athletics or in academic events. We can bless many and give many experience while at the same time we're developing the few select souls who can take us to new heights of attainment, end of quote. Frankly, I do not quite know how to bless the many and the one. I'm impressed by faculty who teach large sections well and somehow find a way to connect with struggling individual students. My daughter had such a faculty in her introductory physiology and chemistry courses. I know a faculty who teach the masses yet still manage to know students by name and make time to meet with them individually out of class. This is truly commendable, as is the decision by the College of Life Sciences to move from mega-section Biology 100 courses to simply very large-section courses in an effort to find a scale that balances its need to serve both the many and the one. Again, I don't know how to solve all the problems of scale at BYU, but I'm persuaded that remembering President Kimball's warning that BYU must never become, quote, an educational factory will help. We must never forget that education is 
not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. We must never forget the one as we teach the many. Now, let me turn to faculty. President Kimball held out high expectations for faculty as scholars, teachers, and citizens. His vision admits no place for mediocrity. He said, as LDS scholars, you must speak with authority and excellence to your professional colleagues in the language of scholarship, and you must also be literate in the language of spiritual things. We must be bilingual. Religious commitments do not excuse you from reasonable achievements in your chosen field, he said. In pursuit of excellence at BYU, quote, we must do more than ask the Lord for excellence. Perspiration must precede inspiration. There must be effort before there is excellence, he said. We must be professional, reaching out to the world of scholars who share our concerns while remaining willing to break with the educational establishment where it has lost its way. Likewise, as previously noted, faculty must be suburb teachers. We should care deeply enough about our students to pray for them daily. There's a quote by President Kimmel about this that moves me greatly about praying for our students daily. As those with dual citizenship in the academy and the church, we should be examples of individuals who have blended successfully things secular and things spiritual in a way that has brought you earned respect in both realms. President Kimball spoke pointedly and at great length about our responsibility as citizens to be faithful, devout, loyal to the Church and its leaders. Here there should be loyalty, he said, as at its ultimate best. You get the point. For President Kimball, the dream requires excellence in every area of faculty responsibility. Our written hiring and rank and status standards do as well. By policy, the standard for CFFs, or continuing faculty status, and rank advancement is high-quality citizenship, teaching, and scholarship. This standard of high quality applies equally to the rank of assistant, associate, and full professor. Yet sometimes we endorse candidates of modest or even dubious quality for essentially lifetime appointments. This does not serve the dream of BYU, nor even conform to our stated guidelines. We need to uphold the standard of high quality in all areas if we are to fulfill President Kimball's dream for BYU. And this standard needs to be upheld at the department level. President Kimball also challenged, quote, every professor and teacher to keep his subject matter bathed in the light and color of the restored gospel, unquote. This challenge still needs attention. Few of us come to BYU knowing how to fulfill the prime directive issued by Brigham Young to Carl G. Mazur to teach our subject matters with the Spirit. Graduate school certainly does not prepare us to teach our subject matters with the Spirit. It often does not prepare us to teach at all. So where do we learn, and what does it mean anyway to teach the alphabet and the multiplication tables with the Spirit of God? 
We need to mentor each other in teaching with the Spirit and to have more sustained and serious conversations about this fundamental dimension of BYU. To facilitate such conversations, the Faculty Center, under Jim Faulkner's able leadership, will redouble attention to faith and intellect initiatives. Likewise, we have taken steps to reinvigorate the former adjunct and now transfer religion professor program. It's been my experience that teaching religion courses on a college level can have a spillover effect on how I approach teaching in other disciplines. Beyond this, however, every faculty member can do at least two simple things urged by President Kimball to fill our classrooms not just with facts, but with faith and testimony. He encouraged us. He said this, We can teach the gospel by example. Two, we can grasp the opportunity occasionally to bear formal testimony of the truth in our classes. I invite all of us, whether we attend faculty seminars on faith and intellect or teach religion classes as transfer faculty, to put into practice this council this semester to teach the gospel by example and to grasp the opportunity occasionally to bear formal testimonies of the truth. Finally, let me say something about salaries and sacrifice. President Kimball is clear and direct about faculty salaries. They should be, quote, adequate, but incidental to your grand and magnificent obsession for the youth and their growth, unquote. This university, quote, is not a place for mercenaries, he said. At the same time, he quoted approvingly John Taylor's statement, quote, some people say we cannot afford to pay teachers. You cannot afford not to pay them, unquote. We're continuing to monitor and, where possible, make adjustments to faculty salaries, particularly for new and junior faculty and relatively low-paid disciplines who are hardest hit by the steep rise in housing prices in the Valley. We are doing this with targeted internal reallocations that preserve historic differentials from merit decisions. Whatever we do regarding salaries, however, we will not entirely keep up with the Joneses in the academic marketplace, especially in the full professor ranks, nor should we try. The spirit of sacrifice and consecration must continue to attend our employment at BYU. When I think of the sacrifices made by the founding generation of faculty, who sometimes got paid, if they were paid at all, in turnips, I am deeply grateful for the generous and stable financial support we receive. I've always felt at BYU that I'm paid more than what I'm worth to do things that I actually love, like teach and learn. And I'm sobered by President Kimball's prophecy that, quote, it will take just as much sacrifice and dedication in the second century of BYU, even more than that required to begin this institution in the first place. Wow, what a quote. For BYU to meet this impending test, we must keep alive the spirit of sacrifice and consecration. Now let me conclude. Let me end these remarks by recounting three remarkable visions of BYU. The first is the well-known story of Alfred Kelly, 
the student commencement speaker who was asked to promote a scheme to sell the upper campus. Here is a dramatization of his remarkable vision, which altered the destiny of BYU by preserving the land on which we sit, then called Temple Hill, from being sold for a subdivision. Now, I'll just read what we projected to the audience visually. By 1913, a new wave of financial problems was threatening the university's future. BYU faced mounting debt. Faculty salaries were so low that teachers ran farms to survive, returning home to irrigate between classes. Its cornerstone, laid in 1907, uh, the Mazer Building sat silent and unfinished for years. Finally, it seemed that the only way to finance its completion was to divide the land on Temple Hill into housing lots and sell them. A student named Alfred Kelly was selected to promote this idea during a commencement speech, but the assignment troubled him. Early one morning, he walked to the top of Temple Hill to pray. What he saw that morning as he looked out across the valley left an unforgettable impression upon all who heard him relate it that day of his address, because what Kelly saw was you. He said, Gradually the morning light advanced across the valley floor toward the spot where I stood. I closed my eyes partially to the advancing light and was startled by the strange vision that seemed to appear before me. The advancing sunlight took on the appearance of people, thousands of young people, who approached me, their arms laden with books. I turned around to find the area behind me illuminated as well. In that light, I saw hundreds of buildings, large and beautiful temples of learning. Those young people passed by me and entered in. Then, with cheerfulness and confidence, they turned toward the east and lifted their eyes heavenward, where again, becoming part of the sunlight, they gradually disappeared from my view." Unquote. Now, Kelly sat down to a stunned silence. Suddenly, Jesse Knight leaped to his feet, pledging several thousand dollars to BYU. Others followed suit. Eventually, under the direction of President Joseph F. Smith, the Church assumed the school's remaining debt. Finally, the future of the university had become secure owing to that dream. The Lord evidently had a plan for the ground the campus now occupies, as he always has had for BYU. He would not even let its leaders prevent its divine destiny by selling that land. Such divine intervention on the things that matter most to the Lord is a comfort to me, knowing that he can intervene to correct my lapses in judgment or vision. Also deeply comforting to me is a less well-known but equally dramatic vision that came to President John Taylor during another financial crisis in our early years. Zina Young Williams, the Dean of Women at Brigham Young Academy and the daughter of Brigham Young, came to President Taylor very distraught because of the financial troubles of the school. They were so severe that they threatened to close it. 
Quote, after listening to Sister William please for help, President Taylor took her hand and in a fatherly way said, My dear child, I have something of importance to tell you that I know will make you happy. I have been visited by your father, that's Brigham Young. He came to me in the silence of the night, clothed in brightness and with a face beaming with love and confidence, told me things of great importance, and among others, that the school being taught by Brother Mazur was accepted in the heavens and was part of the grand plan of life and salvation. There was a bright future in store, and that Christ himself was directing and had a care over this school. That is an amazing quote to me. I earnestly hope that BYU today is still accepted in the heavens. It is frankly astonishing to me to think that BYU has a place in the grand plan of life, and it is deeply consoling to learn that Christ himself has a care over this school. Gratefully, from time to time, I've had sacred personal experiences that have reassured me that heaven still directs this school. These moments of grace have renewed my sense of love and hope for BYU. I know that many of you have had similar moments and similar visions of grace. These may have led you here or kindled your love for BYU and hope for its future. Let me share one final such sacred experience. It happened to one of our faculty only weeks ago. Again, near the Mazer building, on what seems to be sacred ground. With his permission, I quote from a note that the President and I received a week ago, Friday, from this admired faculty colleague. He said, It is just about 8.30 p.m. on Friday evening. I have enjoyed watching from my office the brief thunderstorm that passed over campus, and I thought I would write you a short note. I recently met with my department chair and received my letter of appointment. This occasion always makes me feel grateful and introspective about my weaknesses and failings. Not too many weeks ago, I was working late and left the Grant Building to walk to my car parked by the former president's home. As I left the Grant Building, I walked past the Carl G. Mazur statue. It was a beautiful night, and the Mazur Building looked spectacular as it stood on the edge of our campus, highlighted by the lights that make it almost glow as a sort of beacon. My wife's great-great-grandparents hosted the Mazur family during their very first months in Utah. Later, my wife's great-grandfather worked on campus and helped build the Mazur Building, and initiated student employment on campus. His daughter was one of the first women to receive an MA at BYU. As a result, I always feel a special feeling when I see this building because of her family connection to this place. I do not think there was anyone nearby. It was almost 1.30 a.m., yet I felt a presence of many people I do not know what exactly I was experiencing, but there seemed to be 
other people present, past students, faculty and staff, or future students, I do not know, as I stopped at that very moment and looked at Carl G. Mazur, I was overcome and began to weep. I felt happy to be at BYU. I know that there are many people who could replace me, and someday will. They will sit in my office and not even know that I ever sat there. But for whatever reason, I am at BYU now, and I feel like I need to do better. My heart was full that night, and I feel some of that right now. That's the end of the quote of the letter that President Samuelson and I got. May all of us be filled with a renewed sense of gratitude to be here and a determination to, to do better. The lofty dream of BYU provides no occasion for pride or smug self-congratulation, only a clear call to try humbly to be the best we can be. We are indeed blessed to work and teach in such a house of dreams. Let us resolve to do our part, to put a foundation underneath so that the dreams that have inspired generations may indeed become realities. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches and classic speeches, as well as BYU Speeches compilations on marriage and love, overcoming adversity, Joseph Smith, Come Follow Me, by study and by faith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.